You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Oh, that you? I got another murder for you. Mr. Lafoe, what brings you here? I don't know who I am. You don't know who you are? You know who you are? There are different versions of me in the world. I think someone's trying to kill me. Different victim, same body. Everybody thought it was you. Is he a relative? Come this way. You're a time traveler. I was 20 years old. This beautiful girl, he appeared on the road out of nowhere. If it wasn't for you, we'd still be together. The universe is not about you. You look so much like him. Parallel realities you fragmented into about seven different versions of yourself. One of them happened to be a psychopathic killer. What happened to Daniel? You'd be wise to leave well enough alone with Mr. Lafoe. Tampering tangles to shoot. The past is a dangerous place. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White, and today I'm bringing you an interview with Gabriel Judith Weinshell and Eduardo Ballerini, who are the forces behind the movie Seven Splinters in Time. Gabriel is the writer-director, and Eduardo is the star of the film. And this is a great time travel, film noirish mystery Lots of stuff going on here. It's got a great visual look to it. I highly recommend it. It is coming out to On Demand, I believe through iTunes, maybe through some other platforms on July 13th. Definitely keep an eye out for it and enjoy the interview. Gabriel, I want to know, how did you decide to get into film? I actually don't remember. It happened to me so early. It was sort of a a precognitive choice because I think I've always wanted to make movies as long as I can remember. As a two-year-old, uh, my parents say I was drawing uh, little flip books that you animate by hand. And by five or six, I had picked up some, one of the early video cameras and was making films with my friends and directing them quite bossily around into into little movies. So I, I don't think it was ever a, a clear choice. It was just something I've always remembered doing and being really compelled to do. And Eduardo, how about yourself? Uh, what was your decision to get into movies? The, the short answer to that for me is that I wanted to be a writer. And when I graduated mm-hmm. college and I sort of started down that path, uh, sort of writing and academia, I found it to be very lonely, to be perfectly honest. And I was looking for something that was more collaborative. And literature into playwrights uh, served as a bridge into acting and then eventually into film and television. That was the quick the quick story of my, my journey to, to acting. Eduardo, your father's a writer as well. My father's a writer. I come from a family of academics, and it was uh, sort of a natural path for me. Then I, I found it to be, as I say, just a very solitary kind of experience, and I was looking to be surrounded by other creative people. And the theater, which was the first place I started, although I don't do much theater, seemed like a natural combination of literature and performance uh, and so that's where I found myself. But you have done writing as well. I remember your short uh, "Goodnight Valentino" from what early two thousands, right? That's correct. I did uh, write that. Uh, although I had a, a co-writer in John Rothman, uh, who was also my co-star and co-producer on that. 
Uh, and then I, I worked on some other feature concepts as, as most actors, I think, do. It just never felt like the natural path for me. And then ironically, and Gabe knows this about me, is I, uh, one of the sides of my acting now is actually a return to literature because I do a, a lot of narration of, of audiobooks. So I, I seem to have found my way back to literature somehow. And Eduardo and I actually met along writing paths. We were introduced by a mutual friend, a casting director, Sigda Miguel, and sort of the auspices for the introduction was that Eduardo was writing a script on the uh, silent film star, uh, Valentino, looking for a director, but there was also sort of an opening for me to come in and help work the screenplay with him. And that's actually our first project together. We spent a bit of time rewriting the screenplay and exploring the way we might get it made. What year did you guys meet? That was 2007, 2008. Uh, I, I think there. it may have been even a little earlier. Yeah, I was going to say 2000. No, yeah, that sounds about right. Maybe even as early as 2006 when we first met, but certainly 2007, I think. While we're talking about this, it's a good segue into how we came together. And it was this, as Gabe said, a mutual friend and casting director, uh, Sigda Miguel, who originally just thought that Gabe and I would be, you know, we'd sort of be a good match, as it were. He sort of played matchmaker between a director and an actor uh, and two people right. that had film, film ambitions. And he was right. He just, he knew Gabe, he knew me. He said, you guys have to meet. Eduardo, you have a project. Gabe also has his projects. You guys just need to get in a room together and you, you'll, you'll like each other. And he was, he was absolutely right. And we're forever grateful to Sig. But it took a while longer to work towards what eventually became Seven Splinters in Time. We, like I said, developed this other project, and I think there was discussion about other films, and it was really almost a moment of desperation that triggered making this movie. I had a script in development in Hollywood, or at least on the outskirts of Hollywood, that after about two years, especially given the recession of 2008, just didn't seem to be going anywhere, and I sort of went back to my roots of making a film very guerrilla style, just using whatever I had at hand, and I started shooting this film really with, without much of a plan. It was really an inchoate series of images. But fairly soon on, I, uh, I think I was just talking to Eduardo about it and described what I was doing, and he expressed interest. And before we knew it, the ball was rolling for Eduardo to star in the film, and he had found some financing. He came on as a producer as well as an actor. Well, how does that idea, and you kind of doing this guerrilla style, how does that coalesce into what we see with Seven Splinters? My conceit of the film, especially at the beginning, was but my mother is a painter, and I always wanted to make a film very much like a painter, at least an abstract painter, makes a painting, which is you follow an impulse and you respond to that impulse. So you respond to the line that you've drawn or the line you've painted and react in the moment to that, uh, which is, of course, a, a somewhat ludicrous prospect for making a film because obviously you have a lot more resources that you have to bring to bear and mistakes are more costly. But nonetheless, that's how we started. And the film is very much especially at the beginning. It started very much as an improvisation. I didn't have a full script and we started shooting sort of these sundry images on the weekends. And from there, a storyline emerged. And I think even at the point Eduardo became involved, it was really just that. It was an outline. And we brought in some financiers on the strength of a trailer. And it really wasn't until about three weeks, two weeks even, before we started principal photography that we had a script locked down. I think that is hopefully the charm of the film, that there's a, a very handmade and improvised quality to it. It doesn't feel quite as clearly delineated it sort of unfolds you know maybe like a jazz improvisation that's a really good uh metaphor for it and especially the way that the music plays with the images as well and the way that the images 
bring so many different flavors to it. And I have to ask, in this day of you know modern digital trickery, were you shooting on different formats or were things just treated to look like they were different formats? We shot on at least 17 different formats. And my cinematographer, uh, who's also a producer on the film, George Nicholas, he and I are both uh, you know, real film purists. We really love celluloid. And especially when we started, we were very nostalgic for the days of shooting and film. It was right around the transition point between digital and film. And uh, some of the early images we shot were actually on 35 millimeter. He, he uh, is a teaches at a, a film school, Hofstra University. So we had some access to, to gear. And uh, indeed we shot the film on all of these different mediums, it's the, the early red uh, MX and the uh, Super 16 footage. We shot color, uh, black and white, reversal, negative. There are still images that have been animated. There are frame grabs that have been printed out that I painted, animated, and rephotographed on a Bolex. And, um, you know, that just sort of became a concept of the film. It's so much about memory and the texture of memory that we really wanted the medium that we were telling the story and to, to reflect that, to reflect this sort of collage-like form that memories take. How long did it take for the shooting in this film to, to go? The length of the shoot, the principal photography, was about a month, I want to say. But we also had shot some things prior. Uh, and then we came back, was it two years later, to shoot mm. a, a sequence again. So it was a lot of you know pieces being done, but the bulk of it was about a month. Uh, it was, you know, it was a very sort of improvisational month of shooting as well. That's very much the nature of this film. And we would have to invent things on the fly. There were a couple of instances where we, we lost locations, you know, literally the moment we arrived in front of them and we would have to come up with something else. And I think it actually serves the film because it becomes part of the heart and soul of the film that you feel like it's being done and it's being treated in a different way. and. I'm very proud of that. I, I think we, we set out to do something. We sort of jumped in and we said, okay, now we're just going to start swimming and see where we go. And not a lot of people do that, but we, we had the guts to do it. And uh, I think it, it shows in various aspects of the film. Yeah, this is not a mass-produced major studio film. This is a uh, small-batch distillery, handmade, one-of-a-kind movie that's been polished very lo lovingly but it, it uh, after principle i think we took about six years in post and that was that extended post process was due to a variety of reasons part of it is that it was really an ambitious film we were making there are 300 visual effects shots and we finished with uh very little left in our arse in terms of resources a lot of uh those effect shots had to be done very slowly uh, in people's spare time as favors and then i also sort of took it upon myself to do the score and that was uh, a two-year process in itself, and uh, it was also a complicated film to find in the edit. So I think we're rounding out nine years from the day we first started shooting images for this movie. Eduardo, how was it playing different aspects of yourself, and how did you manage to kind of keep those straight? Because, I, you know, obviously you can't film this movie linearly. Uh, that, that's just impossible, I would imagine. When Gabe mentioned how we met and he sort of first threw out this idea and as an actor, it was, I mean, it was so delicious, right? Somebody says, you're going to have to play multiple characters in a film. There are multiple versions of the same person. And you think this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. This really, really does not come around. And so that was sort of the hook for me as an actor to say, this is, this is an amazing opportunity. Uh, and 
Gabe, I'd seen some of the short work that he'd done, and he obviously has a brilliant visual style. I thought we can pull this off. And then when we got to the shooting of it, there's obviously a main character in Darius and then the other splinters uh, who come off of him. And those were shot more compactly. So the the other characters that are in the film would be done in a a day or two. Uh, So that was sort of easier to control that way. But there was something I had to say as an actor, I like to prepare. I like to know what I'm, I'm going to do the next day. I like to work with my, my co-stars. I like to really, I like to rehearse. I like all of that, but there was an aspect of this film where I did say, I kind of, I kind of got a little free jazz here. I kind of have to just go. I just have to jump in on the day and very much in keeping with Gabe's filmmaking style and musical style and the nature of the production, as we mentioned, I, I did the same thing as an actor. There were days when I would just say, we're going to put on this costume here's our character and I'm just going to, you know, solo, basically, I'm just going to have to go for it here. I'm going to have to make something up on the, on the fly and just go. And it felt more in keeping with the spirit of the, the project to do it that way with Darius, the main character, there was a lot more work that, that Gabe and I had put in beforehand. And we got to work with Austin Pendleton and Emmanuel Shariki and Lynn Cohen. We would have rehearsals, Al Sapienza, another wonderful actor in our film. We would have rehearsals rehearsals around that but the other characters were, were really just kind of spontaneous and free and i i loved that aspect of it i'm just very excited for the world to see eduardo's performance in this it's such a, a versatile agile tour de force of a performance and he's not only playing all these different roles but sometimes in the same frame as other characters sometimes he's fighting with himself there are chase sequences with himself and and the whole time there's all the acrobatics of that, but also just a real emotional authenticity that grounds the film. And I'm really excited for, for people to, if they don't already know Eduardo's work, to discover his work in this film. I was so excited to see Austin Pendleton in this. He has been a favorite of mine for a long time. Uh, Austin is absolutely amazing, and we were thrilled to have him. He's Very many people recognize Austin, but he's not quite a household name as much as he should be, but he's played opposite everyone. He's worked with Meryl Streep and Sidney Lumet, and you see him, he's sort of the the, the zealot of stage and screen, and uh, we were just blown away that he accepted this this role, and, and he was just amazing to have on set. Completely wonderful to, to be around and really generous with his performance. Well, the backstory there, uh, this is Eduardo speaking, is that uh, Austin was somebody I'd studied with uh, at uh, HP Studios in New York. Austin mm. was probably the busiest man you'll ever meet. He's been in about a thousand films. He's directed about a thousand plays and he's you know, written even more. And he also finds time to teach. Uh, and so when I moved back to the city from Los Angeles, uh, shortly after I'd met Gabe, I started studying with Austin on the recommendation of a friend. And then this role came up in our film and Austin came up as a possibility. It was extraordinary because I reached out to Austin uh, and said, you know, I'm doing this. What do you think? We'd love to have you. And then he came on board, which was extremely flattering to me because, you know, I was a student and it was like the teacher saying to the student, you know, I will work with you as a peer now. And I, that was mm. so humbling and flattering to me. You know, Austin said one of the kindest things that I've ever heard in my career one day on set, he said, I'm doing this movie because you're doing this movie. And it was just, I mean, to this day, that brings a tear to my eye. And he's such a a wonderful man and a wonderful actor. And he just commands this performance. And we were extremely lucky to have him. I can't imagine. Well, I mean, I've worked on projects that have taken years to put together. But with a movie, it's got to be so 
difficult, especially you were talking about coming back years later and, you know, reshooting a scene. How is that even to just kind of pick up those feelings again and even, you know, get the band back together and let's redo this, this scene again? Eduardo? How did, how did that feel? Well, we went back and thought this was the climactic scene of the film. It's the fight sequence that ends the film. And uh, for for technical reasons, I won't get into the special effects weren't working as they were with our first shoot. So we had to we had to redo the choreography with a well, I think with fewer resources than we had during principal and a even more stripped down skeleton crew. But how did that feel as an actor, Eduardo, to to go back into it two years later? I'm not going to lie, it was difficult. Um, and there was <laughs> sorry, I, you know. <laughs> Because, you know, it's just us talking here. I was originally a little bit upset that we had to do this because I wanted it to be that sequence to come out of the, the same period of time and photography that we had shot the rest of the movie. Uh, and so when Gabe called me and he's like, listen, we really want to redo this. I remember saying, do we have to? Is there a way we can make this work? Come on. <laughs> Not that I didn't want to get back with the, our crew who were wonderful. But I just thought, wait, we've done it in this time period. Let's try to see if we can keep it all there. And then when I when I understood that it was not possible, I was like, okay, here we go. And then I will say this, that Greg Benick, uh, who plays John Luca, who came out to do the, the sequence as well, he made me see it all in a new light. He was there on set, and he was so happy. And he's, he's a happy person in general, and he's a wonderful man. Mm. He was so happy, and he was just like, this is great. We're all back together. We get to keep doing this. And I, it, sort of, it sort of, it sort of clicked at that moment. I was like, right, this is a good thing. This is a good thing. Like the film is, is still going and we're improving it. But originally I, I will admit it was a little difficult to swallow, but I, it's obviously for the best in the film. So I'm glad we did it. Every, every time we see Greg now, he says, let's reshoot the tunnel sequence one more time. I mean, I swear yeah. at the premiere in, in Los Angeles, he will say that to us. He's very excited. Yeah. We may we may reshoot it yet again just for the uh, the DVD extras. Gabe, this is your first feature film and you choose to work on a project that takes you, how long did you say? Like nine years to complete? Nine, nine, nine years. Completely idiotic and, and uh, <laughs> I wish I could go, go back in time and, and make a wiser choice. Yeah, everything they say about, about your first indie uh, or about your first feature, regardless, is you know you want to keep it simple, especially if you're you're doing it on an independent film budget. You want just a, a small handful of characters, a handful of locations. Uh, you certainly don't want any special effects. You don't want to do the music yourself. All of the things that you're supposed to do when you make an independent film for the first time, we we broke those rules, and I think that's part of the reason this took so long. Um, but there you have it. I'm not quite sure how we got into this mess, but we 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 came out the other side. And we're really happy with what we have. This is a time travel film in a sense. And you, know, you look at something like Time Crimes, which is three actors, maybe four. Yeah, no real special effects. Super, super simple kind of thing. And then look at this, which is kind of an art film mixed with a film noir, mixed with a time travel film. I mean, I do have to ask you, what were... I can tell one influence right off the bat. When you have a character named McFly, I'm like, okay, he's a big fan of Back to the Future. But what were some of the other influences to bring all of these disparate elements together into one cohesive package? Well, there definitely is that Back to the Future reference. The uh, There's a there's a, actually a, a series in the film of Shout out to other time travel films, everything from the very mainstream Back to the Future by Bob Zemeckis. Uh, there's a scene of my old childhood friend, Akiva Shaffer, who's actually also a director, jumping over a car uh, on a television uh, screen. So reenacting that scene from the first Back to the Future. But then 
We also have some sort of artier uh, references. We have Chris Marker's La Jotée being reenacted on on the same TV screen. And uh, there's a reference to Lemmy Caution, the character in Godard's Alphaville. And um, I think when we were starting out, I... uh, and Eduardo and I talked about this a lot. Uh, Darren Aronofsky's first film, Pie, uh, was definitely a big influence, at least in the spirit of that film. You know, that film he he made for uh, you know a, a, a fraction of a normal budget, and um, you know really did a, a, everything himself. It was very handmade, and it had a real guerrilla spirit. And um, that film was a huge influence. And I think also a film that I hadn't been aware of until we really started to developing this film, Chankaris Primer, which is a big time travel kind of cult film and just a brilliant, really smart film. I think a, a much um, a much more uh, technically accurate depiction of time travel. That film really, I think, gets closest to what if time travel were really possible or assuming, or even if it is possible, it's how it would actually, the mechanics of it would actually go down. But that film is a really smart, low budget, lo-fi sci-fi film. So that was definitely a, a point of research. Um, but I just watched everything, you know. Uh, I really did a lot of time travel film research. Especially, I'm not I'm not inherently a sci-fi connoisseur. I don't. I wouldn't say I knew that genre backwards and forwards before going into this. I sort of stumbled into making a sci-fi film. So there was a lot of um, kind of catching up to do. Now, are you guys in constant contact during this nine-year period? Or I mean, because Eduardo, I know you are off doing so many projects you seem like an actor who never sleeps just looking at your cv i mean i i remember you from you know obviously the sopranos my wife is a big fan of elementary i've seen you show up on there so there are so many things that you just are working on at all times are you like checking in every once in a while with gabe like are you still eating are you still still there <laughs> yeah i mean there's definitely we we did worry that gabe had stopped eating and sleeping at one point uh but yeah i mean obviously you know, our careers have uh, have gone on and we've continued to work. All of us, the other actors, our producers have made other films. Uh, I've done a number of TV shows, some of which you mentioned, all that kind of stuff. Um, but yes, we were we were in, in constant contact. I, I did want to say one thing about the, the whole nine year process, and that is mm. this was a this was a this, this was really a, a study in determination on Gabe's part. There were so many points during these nine years where he could have given up and possibly even people encouraged him to just let it go and say, it didn't work out, <laughs> move on, do the next thing. Um, but he was the one and it's, it's his film. And this makes sense that he never let go. And this is just an extraordinary feat that he just stayed with it and said, I believe in this film. I believe in this film. It will find an audience. It will find its way. And, and, we were, quite frankly, we were rejected by a number of film festivals over the years, some of which we would submit to again with a different cut. Uh, we'd get rejected again. And Gabe just wouldn't let go. He's like, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep working on it. And somebody's going to see this. Somebody is going to like this. And lo and behold, you know, somebody came along and invited us to CineQuest, which is a wonderful film festival in San Jose, California. And then... Uh, at Gravitas Ventures, a distributor called and said, we want to distribute the film. And all of a sudden, all of that work paid off. And it was just kind of this watershed moment, I think. And now we have to see how it fares, you know, with, with the public and in the marketplace. But it's really, I mean, whatever happens with this film, it is just an extraordinary thing that Gabe has done, that he made this thing from start to finish and never let go. Uh, and I just, I'm in awe of, of that. 
Eduardo, what are you doing in August? Because I would, I was talking to Greg, and we were thinking we could reshoot the tunnel sequence. Um, I, there's still, I think we should reshoot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, it, it is going to be hard to let go of the film. I, and I want to add, it wasn't just me. I think I had an amazing team who never gave up on the film either. They were always checking in. Um, like I said, they were completely game when we did we reshot things. Um, there were many things to do throughout the post process that, that didn't just entail me. You know. I had a really wonderful, determined team who who kept working and trying to marshal resources when we could, and and uh, were, were I, I wouldn't obviously not have gotten here here alone. Well, what's kind of the next steps for the film, and what do you guys have planned for it? We are about to release the film into the world. We have a three city theatrical uh, distribution deal, so the film will be opening in Los Angeles uh, July thirteenth. Uh, we have our premiere in Beverly Hills the eleventh. Uh, we have a one-night engagement in New York City this coming Monday. I don't, I don't know when this will air, so that I should say it's going to be July 9th at the Anthology Film Archives. And then the film will be opening at a theater in Seattle, uh, I believe, late in July. Uh, we don't have a date for that yet. And then uh, if you are not in those cities or can't travel to those cities, the film is going to be released on VOD on a number of platforms July 13th. Lucky Friday the 13th. And what's next for you, Gabe? I I have two scripts, and I actually would be really happy to make either one of them um, or even make them concurrently, which is, would be a terrible idea, but I'm so excited about both of them. I, I, I want to make them both right away. One is a um, sort of futuristic dystopian musical uh, uh, with only three characters, and I actually have a lot of the music for that written. Um, so I'd like I said, I'm also a musician, and I'm, uh, you know, always trying to find intersections between those disciplines. So, so I have a lot of those songs written, and the other is a sort of a character-based, multi-character drama, uh, a little in the, the spirit of like P.T. Anderson's Magnolia. There's a lot of different intersecting, you know, storylines or Altman shortcuts, something like that, and that has some sort of magic realist touches. But I want to make another film. Is the is the short answer. Before I forget, is the soundtrack going to be released for Seven Splinters? The soundtrack is released. It's actually already out in the world on Sonoblast Records. Uh, you can find it on Spotify and iTunes and Amazon. Uh, so just if you want to Google Seven Splinters in Time, uh, it will come up. And it's a, um, it's a actually, so there's 93 minutes. We released all of the music I wrote for the film. There's 93 minutes of music for uh, what was a 75-minute film. What's next on my play is uh, I wish I could announce officially because there are a couple of things I'm circling right now that uh, either of which I, I hope comes to, to bear, uh, but they're not officially yet, so I can't say anything. But there are a couple of film projects that would be in the fall. Uh, and then the other thing I'm, I'm working on is actually uh, I, I record, as I mentioned earlier, I do a lot of recordings. And I'm recording this massive, massive piece by a Norwegian writer uh, named Carlo Knauskor, who wrote a mm. 3,500 page uh, memoir, essentially. And uh, I've done the first five volumes and we're now in the middle of volume six. I owe about 800 pages of uh, audio recording on this project, which has been extraordinary. I have to say, uh, one of my absolute highlights of my professional life has been recording this man's work. So I have that in front of me. And then as I say, there are two film things, which I wish I could just tell you were definitive and happening, uh, but you'll have to have us back on uh, so I can mm. tell you about that later. I can't believe you're doing all of these things and you've taken on, um, uh, he's, he's sort of like the modern day priest, right? The 800 pager. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. This, this, Norwegian, this Norwegian writer is uh, he's quite extraordinary. Uh, and 
he's, uh, I have to say, I feel like I've, I'm playing a character and it's taken years, another project, which has taken years, uh, that I've been playing this man for years. And I, I call it the, uh, I think in total, it's going to be about 150 hours of audio. Uh, and I call it the 150 hour monologue that I've been working on. Uh, and wow. it's been an extra, yeah, it's been an extraordinary experience. He's a wonderful writer. Uh, check him out if you can, you know, if you have time to read 3,500 pages, he's your man. Um, talk about, so, I wonder what, what his, his tunnel scene is. Yeah. He's, he's rewritten a few scenes, but there's that. And, uh, and then as I say, this fall, I, there's a couple of film projects, which I really, really hope work out. Uh, we're talking about them now. So hopefully with the deal patterns. Eduardo, I want to get real nerdy with you because I love audio books and I've always been curious. A couple things. Are you going someplace to record that or do you have a recording set up in your house for that kind of thing? I do actually have a little studio in my place, but mostly I work in other studios. Uh, usually the publisher wants you to come to them. But yeah, it's an extraordinary medium. And as an actor, it's something I, I sort of came into about five, six years ago. Somebody asked me to do something. I didn't really know much about it. And this, there's a very sort of seven splinters in time aspect to it in that you're playing multiple characters. It's the same kind of thing because you have to do every character in the book, obviously. And so you have to characterize them. And so as an actor, it's, it's one of the most extraordinary challenges you can, you can face. I've loved the work and I've read some extraordinary books uh, and met some extraordinary writers over the years. So that has kept me very busy. And it's a nice balance between working on set uh, and then working in the booth. I, I love filming. But I do find it uh, taxing. Uh, you know, you do a month where you're getting up at four in the morning and you're shooting till midnight and you're, you know, all of that uh, versus, you know, kind of leisurely strolling into a studio at 930 or 10 and being done by three. Um, so it's a nice balance of the two. So I always try to go back and forth between the two. I will say this, though, Gabe and I would love to make another film together uh, at some Indeed. point. Uh, we will see if we can work that out. Hopefully it won't take us nine years the second time around. I think we've learned some lessons. Uh, yeah, <laughs> hard, hard fought lessons. Uh, um, Bastard, please. We were very, yeah, we, you know, when we first met, I think we we had the sense that we were going to be collaborating for for many many years, uh, and so you know, hopefully there's another project out there for us, and we can uh, we can bring that. One more nerdy question about audiobooks. Do you go into the studio then and you say, okay, we're recording, or somebody tells you we're recording, I don't know, 50 pages today. Um, I imagine that you have a set that you're going to do. And how long does it take you to prepare for those kind of things? Because this isn't movies. This isn't TV. You don't have to memorize this stuff to go in there. But I imagine you have to do a lot of pre-reading. Yeah, you want to, You certainly want to be familiar with the book. I don't think you need to know every word of it. Uh, you just need to sort of skim quickly and have a sense. There should also be a, a little surprise uh to you while you're reading it things should should be fresh as you're reading them and we usually typically work about five six hours with breaks obviously uh and can get usually about 80 to 100 pages done uh and i know that sounds like a lot to people but that's just a a rather sort of steady pace of reading the first time i ever did a book i i did a day and, and passed out afterwards i was so tired uh and exhausted <laughs> and just overwhelmed by it and i i did I got home and I fell down and just fell asleep. But now, you know, I've, I've sort of found a rhythm with it. But it's been amazing because it has made me a better film actor. And mm. uh, film acting has made me a better uh, reader. Uh, they, they kind of work hand in hand. I, I hope to continue doing both. Your children children are also very lucky to, to be read to by a professional <laughs> audiobook. 
<laughs> yes, I, I, I'm given the task of saying, you know, here comes the award-winning audiobook reader to read a bedtime story. Uh, <laughs> now go to sleep. Yeah. Now go they to go sleep. to sleep any faster. <laughs> uh, no, they don't. Gabe, I have one uh, final question for you as well. I know that you directed Martin Scorsese in a short film, and I'm curious what it's like directing Martin Scorsese. I, it's a very gener- generous turn of phrase. He, uh, I, I was lucky enough to, um, I was at the time represented by a management company that uh, had also represented the actor Victor Argo, who had been in many Scorsese films. And, and uh, Argo passed in, I want to say, 2004 or 2005. And uh, this management company was helping to put on a memorial uh, that, that would honor him, you know, different New York performers. And Scorsese had wanted to speak at the memorial, but because of scheduling things, I think he was finishing maybe Aviator at the time, he couldn't make it. So I sort of, by total chance, it fell upon me. They, they, they said, hey, we need somebody to shoot this. Um, and I got, I think I was about... I want to say 26 years old, 25 years old at the time. Um, and I, uh, <laughs> I, I had actually, Scorsese was really the first uh, director that I studied really with a with an avidity and passion. I did a, a research paper on him in high school, and I had seen all of his films, I think, except for Bhaskar Bertha, maybe. And so I was completely starstruck and overwhelmed. And I thought, the first thing I knew, this was still, you could shoot things in video, and probably anybody would have just you know, usually sourced a perfectly good video camera. But, but of course, I thought we have to shoot Scorsese in film. You can't shoot Martin Scorsese in video. So we got a, a 60 millimeter camera and a small crew together. And I had about 15 minutes with him. And uh, I think the extent of the quote unquote directing was I asked him for another take. Eduardo, Gabe, thank you so much for your time today. And congratulations on Seven Splinters in Time. It is a wonderful film. Thank, thank you, so you so much, Mike. We really appreciate you taking the time.
enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.